for that. Would you join me in prayer as we begin our time in the Word today? Father, thank you so much for Easter Sunday. Thank you for time to gather with family. Thank you for um, just the goodness of this day, and thank you for your resurrection. Um, We are humbled as we behold it, um, the display of your power, which could have been for any reason at all accomplished our salvation and gave us the promise of eternal life. And Lord, it is a wonderful picture of your grace and your mercy, making your power um, work toward us. And so as we gather and as we celebrate, would we also remember the truth of the cross, the agony that you went through in order to purchase this eternal life for us. And Father, as we reflect on this today, I do pray that you would help us um, to recognize the implications that this doctrine has for our whole life. It's not something that just um, changes us on Easter Sunday, but it's something that changes every day and brings meaning and purpose and hope to our lives. So, Father, as we um, reflect on this beautiful passage of Scripture, would that come through loud and clear? And so we do ask for your help. We pray that your Spirit would speak to us through your Word today as we look at this passage. And we pray that you would help us to come away from this time with a greater knowledge and appreciation for who you are, and would you be glorified through this. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. In uh, my college years, I had the chance to visit um, Israel. And on that trip to Israel, there were two places where I experienced a profound sense of sadness and grief. One of them was at the Wailing Wall. And for those of you who are familiar with Israel, you've seen pictures of the Orthodox Jews gathered around the wall of the temple and praying, praying to a God who is not real. And although they think they are praying to the God of the Bible, they are praying to a false God. And so when you stand at the Wailing Wall, you feel a profound sense of darkness and lostness, as profound as standing in a Buddhist temple or a Muslim mosque, that recognition that these people don't know Jesus and they don't have salvation. The other place that maybe is not as well known is what is shown in the picture here. This is the cemetery on the western slope of the Mount of Olives, and Pictures really don't do it justice. You kind of have to be there to get a sense for what this is like. But it is an entire mountainside, the slope of a mountain, covered with bone boxes like you see here. These ossuaries are boxes that contain the bones of faithful Jews for centuries. And the reason that Jews... Uh, it's, it's privileged to be buried on the Mount of Olives. And, and the reason for that is not because of the view you get of Jerusalem or how close you are to the temple, but it's because of a prophecy that is recorded in Zechariah 14, which tells us that the Messiah will return and he will place his feet on this western slope of the Mount of Olives when he brings judgment on the nations and restores Israel. And so the faithful Jews of The countryside of the nation for centuries have sought to be buried here so that when the Messiah returns, they will have a front row seat to his reign and his restoration. And what is tragic as you stand there and you look at those tombs, as you recognize that the vast majority of those individuals have missed the coming of the Messiah, 
Yes, we believe that the Messiah will return and he will stand on the Mount of Olives, but that Messiah has already come. He has already stood on the Mount of Olives and we anticipate his second coming. And so imagine the disappointment of these individuals as they recognize their faith was misplaced and their hope is misplaced because they don't know the Messiah. And so as we think about these things, as we look at a picture like this, you see truly a religion that is empty, a religion that has no hope, a religion that is worthless. They've placed their hope in something that can never fulfill them. And so if we're honest today, many of us have had the same questions about Christianity. If you've wondered whether Christianity is is the one true religion, if you've wondered whether Christ actually rose from the dead, that doesn't make you a bad person person. It doesn't make you a less worthy believer. It actually just makes you human and incredibly normal. And so today, as we approach the resurrection, we can approach this with great confidence because what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians is that there is actually no event that is more real and has more validity that has ever happened in history. And so the difference between the empty, worthless religions that we see in the world around us and Christianity is simply the resurrection from the dead. We worship a God who can raise Jesus from the dead and also promises to raise us from the dead as well. And that is the foundation of our religion. It's the foundation of our belief, and it causes our belief and our faith to be of inestimable value and worth. And so as we come today to 1 Corinthians 15, which is Paul's analysis and description of the resurrection from the dead, we're going to look at three different parts of this passage. Now, 1 Corinthians 15 is a long passage, and and it is a rich passage. It is tightly organized, and Paul has actually written a very precise argument in the Greek tradition to refute those who questioned the resurrection from the dead. And so, because of the density of this material, we're, we're not going to get through all of it. We're just going to get through verse 34 um, this morning. But as Paul looks at the resurrection, he makes three points. First, he talks about the reality of Christ's resurrection, and he, beyond a shadow of a doubt, establishes the historical veracity of this event. Then he uses the historical fact of Christ's resurrection to give us the true value of our resurrection. What is the value of the fact that we will resurrect from the dead? And then finally, he concludes in in verses 26 through 34 with an explanation of how this truth changes our lives, and it gives us something to live for, a purpose to our life and to our identity. And so as we follow Paul through this passage, we'll be looking at at those three points as well as we move through. But 1 Corinthians 15 um, comes in the letter of 1 Corinthians, and Paul has a long and ongoing relationship with the church at Corinth. He spent about 18 months in Corinth establishing a church, working with Priscilla and Aquila, who were the tent makers, and helping them to be the first leaders of that church in Corinth. 
The letter to 1 Corinthians was written much after that, around A.D. 53 to 55, while Paul was residing in Ephesus. And so he had received some questions from the church at Corinth, as well as hearing some things that were concerning to him about what was happening in the church at Corinth. And so he sent this letter to them to address both those concerns that he had, as well as the questions that they were bringing to him. So 1 Corinthians is a book that is rich in ecclesiology. It tells us how a church should function. It shows us the purpose of church discipline. It shows us how the spiritual gifts should be exercised within the church. And it reveals to us the purpose of the church as well as the purpose of the the lives of believers as, as a whole. And so it is rich in ecclesiology as it seeks to address these questions to this first century church in Corinth. Now, the city of Corinth was first a Greek colony, a Greek city, but that city had been destroyed and then rebuilt by the Romans. So at this point, Paul is writing to a Roman city, and because of the trade routes in the area, Corinth was an incredibly wealthy and affluent city, but it matched its wealth and affluence with its immorality. And so... Both, uh, so as the church sought to exist in that city, it struggled to be separate from those influences in the city of Corinth. And so the church struggled to be holy and to be separate from the community. The other influence that affected the church at Corinth was the influence of Greek philosophy. Corinth was on the, the Greek peninsula, and so uh, it was influenced heavily by Greek philosophy. And so the apostles and the gospel were sometimes subjected to um, inordinate examination according to the standards of Greek philosophy and rhetoricians of the day. And so Paul sought to push back against both that Roman influence of, in, of, of immorality as well as the Greek influence of philosophy on the church that was there. So specifically in regard to the resurrection from the dead, um, as we pick up in chapter 15, verse 1, Paul actually is so excited to get to this topic that he doesn't tell us what he's arguing for until about halfway through our section. (laughs) So I'm going to jump to verse 12 so that we understand his purpose in what he's writing here. And verse 12 says, Now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? And so what Paul is addressing in the Corinthian church is this tightrope that Corinthian believers sought to walk in their theology and their walk with the Lord. They sought to acknowledge the fact that Christ had risen from the dead, but deny that there would be a resurrection for all of believers following that time. The motivation for holding this view was influenced by Greek philosophy. The Greek philosophers of the time thought that the body was a prison to the spirit, And so, at death, your spirit was released from that prison. And so, Greek philosophy had a hard time acknowledging or thinking about your spirit being re-imprisoned in a body at a resurrection from the dead. And so, the believers sought to, to synthesize these things by saying that the resurrection from the dead had already happened, that the spirit was already alive, and that there wouldn't be another resurrection from the dead. And so Paul writes this chapter specifically to address this concern. And his conclusion is that if you deny that believers will rise from the dead, then you also must deny that Christ rose from the dead. And therefore, if Christ rose from the dead, then we have confidence to believe that every believer will rise from the dead as well. 
So with that as some context, we pick up in chapter 15, verse 1. Now I make known to you, brothers and sisters, the gospel which I preached to you, which you also received, and in which you also stand, by which you also are saved, if you hold firmly to the word which I preached to you, unless you have believed in vain. For I handed down to you as of first importance that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain. But I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached, and so you believed. Paul's purpose in this beginning is to establish the foundation and the basis of orthodoxy. So much like he does in the letter to the Galatians, Paul seeks first to establish what everyone agrees on. This is common knowledge. This is the gospel that we all believe and we all hold to and we all preach. And so if we establish this foundation, then he goes on to show where their erroneous thought has entered into that foundation or why they can't believe their erroneous doctrine if they also hold to this foundation. And so verses 1 through 2 give us that great picture of the gospel and of what it is. And notice what he says in verse 2, by which you also are saved if you hold firmly to the word which I preach to you. Now, for some, that may sound like uh, a description of losing your salvation, that you're only saved if you hold firmly to what Christ has taught us. And that's not at all what Paul means there. What Paul is saying is he is merely showing the grave consequences of denying a piece of the gospel truth and the gospel orthodoxy. You cannot deny any part of this package without denying the whole. And so the Corinthians theologians who had flippantly denied the fact that believers would experience the resurrection from the dead run the risk of becoming heretics in the entire orthodox tradition of what the gospel means and what it teaches. And so if you seek to believe the entire gospel package, you must also acknowledge the entirety of what that means, including the resurrection from the dead. And so in his argument to prove that all believers will experience resurrection from the dead, Paul lays a strong foundation for the truth that Christ has been raised from the dead. For I handed down to you as of first importance that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Verses 3 through 4, yes, 3 through 4, record a pre-Pauline creedal statement. And so we have several of these throughout the New Testament. These are creedal statements that the early church had put together to put boundaries and orthodoxy to their teaching post-Christ. And so here we have one of these truths that has been held for centuries. 
And now we have the privilege of reading it in our own Scripture. Isn't that a wonderful truth? Believers in the catacombs were, were saying these words as we repeat them today as well. What a wonderful picture. And, and the emphasis that he shows there is these things happened according to the Scriptures. And so I don't know where you've been reading for this Easter season, but I have been reading with our children in the Gospel of Luke. And so as we read in Luke... Jesus walks on the road to Emmaus with those two believers, and it says he shows them throughout all of the law and the prophets, not only that that the Christ would die, but that he also would resurrect and would be raised from the dead. And so this truth has been known and taught through all of Scripture. It's not something new that they just came up with after Christ. It is something that for all of Scripture it is taught and practice, that believers would experience a resurrection from the dead. Notice also the careful way in which Paul talks about the resurrection. He says that Christ has been raised from the dead. Now, why is that important? Well, Christ is God, right? He is 100% man and 100% God. And so, if Christ had the ability to raise himself, if his resurrection was because of his own divinity and his own power then that would feel like something we could never attain. You and I don't have the power to raise ourselves from the dead. And so it's significant that Paul points out here that Christ was raised. He was raised by God the Father. And so because of that, that provides hope and a foundation for our expectation of resurrection. It's not dependent on our power or our ability, but we anticipate the same kind of resurrection where we will be raised to new life through the power of God. And so even in this explanation of the gospel, we see all of this foundational truth that Paul is weaving in about the necessity and the essential nature of believers experiencing a resurrection from the dead. Then he goes through the eyewitness accounts, those who saw Christ in his resurrected body, and the key word there is appeared. Four different times he repeats the word appeared, that Christ appeared to his followers in his resurrected body. The most important one to notice there is the fact that he appeared to 500 individuals as a part of his proof that he rose from the dead. And this one is not included in any of the gospel accounts, and so it's only recorded in 1 Corinthians. But it's amazing, and we're so grateful that it's included here, because one of the primary arguments against the resurrection from the dead, against Christ rising from the dead, or the way they try to explain that is by saying that everyone who saw Christ, or saw Christ, was just witnessing a hallucination. And so they were, they were so grief-stricken and in such emotional turmoil that they hallucinated this appearance of this man who they loved so much. And so he wasn't actually risen from the dead. They just saw a hallucination of it. Well, it is a statistical impossibility for 500 people to all witness the exact same hallucination. And so we have a, an incredible passage to appeal to when we're confronted with that argument. If 500 people all saw the risen Lord, which takes more faith to believe, that they all saw a hallucination or that they actually saw the Lord risen from the dead? And so Paul includes that detail as well, and and we're thankful for that. And then he includes even Christ's appearance to him. 
And the reason he includes this is because Paul's witness to the physically risen Christ was post the ascension. And so the ascension doesn't even change what happened to Christ, that before his ascension, he appeared to people in his physical glorified body, and even after the ascension, he still appears to people and remains in that physical glorified body resurrected from the dead. And so with all of this, Paul is, is inviting people to investigate this fact. He's inviting you to question whether Christ rose from the dead, and he provides incredible evidence, unquestionable evidence for the reality that Christ rose from the dead. Now, if, if Christ absolutely and unquestionably rose from the dead, what does that mean for you and I? And that's where Paul goes from here. So we pick up in verse 12 with what we read previously. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith is also in vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he, was ra- that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then we are not even, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless and you are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And if we have hoped in Christ only in this life, We of all people are most to be pitied. And so here, Paul begins to talk about the value of the resurrection from the dead. What is our hope if we confess the fact that the dead are resurrected? He first shows the inseparable nature of Christ's resurrection and our resurrection. And we've talked in the past weeks about our union with Christ. That if our salvation is accomplished through our union with Christ then we also experience Christ's resurrection from the dead. And Paul shows how ridiculous it would be to hold to the fact that Christ rose from the dead while denying the fact that believers would rise from the dead. And so if you deny the fact that believers will rise from the dead, you are also denying the fact that Christ rose from the dead. And if Christ did not rise from the dead, then your belief is worthless. The key word in this section is the word vain. Our preaching has been in vain. Your faith has been in vain. Vain means it has, it has no intellectual, moral, or spiritual value. If Christ did not rise from the dead, your faith is worthless. It has absolutely no value whatsoever. And so, for us this morning, what that should do is that should change the way we think about the fact that Christ rose from the dead. We should be in appreciation for the incredible value and worth that the resurrection from the dead gives to every day of our lives. In verses 17 through 19, if we we go through those consequences of denying the fact that Christ rose from the dead, and if we flip those around to positive statements, you realize the incredible value that the resurrection of the dead contributes to our lives and to the way in which we live. Notice what he says in verse 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. And so 
that means that with the resurrection from the dead, your faith is the most valuable thing that you possess. 1 Peter 1.4 tells us that our inheritance is imperishable. It will not fade away. And it is an incredibly valuable inheritance. And so your faith is not worthless. It's not in vain, like, uh, like the Jewish faith that we talked about earlier. But your faith has incredible value and worth for you. Let's look at the next phrase. Your faith is worthless. If Christ has not been raised from the dead, then you are still in your sins. If Christ just died and stayed in the grave, that means Satan won. Do you recognize that? Without the resurrection, Jesus is just another dead body. It doesn't matter that he died for you. If he can't rise from the dead, then Satan and death has won. And you would still be in your sins. We would still be guilty of the judgment and the wrath of God. And it is only because Christ rose from the dead that he abolishes the power of sin and death in this life. That's what is accomplished for you because of Christ's resurrection. Not only that, those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Falling asleep, even that image doesn't even make sense if the resurrection hasn't happened. Paul talks about those who have died as falling asleep because of the temporary nature of their death. Death for a believer is a long nap. You just go to sleep for a while and you are raised from the dead. That's why Paul uses this language. It's not because he doesn't want to talk about death. It's because it's a more accurate description of what happens to us when we die. We anticipate the Lord waking us up and raising us from the dead. And so if Christ has not been raised, then that is not true of us. And those who have died are dead for eternity. There is no resurrection. Are you getting a picture for the value of what Christ has accomplished for you because of his resurrection? And the last thing is that if we have hoped in Christ only in this life, we are of all people most to be pitied. And isn't this how the world looks at Christians? The world looks at Christians as those crazy, whacked-out lunatics who are giving up all of the pleasures and joys of this life, right? And Paul says that would be true, except for the fact that Christ rose from the dead. And so, because Christ rose from the dead, there is hope. Rather than requiring pity or, or rather than being mistaken, we have hope for this life that we live because of the resurrection from the dead. Paul continues this theme of the value of the resurrection in verses 20 through 28. So read those with me as well. But the fact is, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man death came, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, and after that, those who are Christ's at his coming. Then comes the end, when he hands over the kingdom to our God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all of the enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is clear that this excludes the Father who put all things in subjection to him. Then when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself 
will also be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, so that God may be all in all. If we could summarize this section in in a sentence or a couple of sentences, what Paul is saying is that Christ's resurrection from the dead initiates the process of Christ's eventual victory. That Christ rising from the dead is a promise, a foreshadowing of what will happen in the end times. That the power that raised Christ from the dead is the power that all of the world will see. And that will eventually bring the world to its knees in worship before our God. And so the power that was on display in the resurrection is the power that will bring about God's plan in the end of the age. His resurrection has initiated that plan that will culminate in Christ's second coming and his rule over all of the world. But in the meantime, notice what he says. Christ's resurrection, in verse 20, is the first fruits of those who are asleep. Christ's resurrection is the first fruits for you and I. First fruits was an agricultural term. In Israel, you gave the first of your harvest to the Lord as a guarantee of the harvest that was to come. It was an act of faith. You gave this harvest rather than hoarding it for yourselves, but you offered it to the Lord, trusting Him to bring about the rest of the harvest. What an incredible picture when applied to Christ. We look at the reality of Christ's resurrection from the dead, and that resurrection gives us promise and hope to know that Christ will keep His word and will raise us from the dead as well. So Christ is the first fruits. For since by a man death came, by a man also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. This is such a rich passage, and there's so much theological significance here. The federal headship of Adam, Adam was our representative in the garden, and the agent by which sin was given to all of mankind. We all experience the judgment of sin because of Adam. The beauty of what this passage says is that in Christ, through the resurrection of the dead, the curse is reversed. That it is only through Christ that we experience the freedom from the curse of sin that was inaugurated in the garden. There is no other way to escape the curse of sin that Adam introduced on us. There is no way to escape the curse of sin that we invite by our own failure apart from the knowledge that Christ rose from the dead. All of the evil and the sin and the judgment that has entered this world because of the fall of Adam is undone in a moment by the fact that Christ rose from the dead. It undoes the curse and it frees us from the bondage of sin. What an incredible truth to reflect on this morning. So, We know the reality of Christ's resurrection from the dead. We know the value of our resurrection from the dead, what Christ accomplished for us through his resurrection. Now we want to conclude this morning by looking at the implications of this for you and I. Pick up with me in verse 29, and we'll read through verse 34. For otherwise, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why then are they baptized for them? Why are we also in danger every hour? I affirm, brothers and sisters, by the boasting in you which I have in Christ our Lord that I die daily. If from human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what good is it to me? 
If the dead are not raised, let's eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Sober up morally and stop sinning, for some have no knowledge of God, and I say this to your shame. Now, anytime someone asks me a question and I don't know the answer to it right away, what they say is, oh, that's okay. I'll just text Doran. So I want you all, I want you all to text Doran about verse 29, chapter 15, verse 29. Say, Doran, what does this mean? Okay? And then let me know, because I, I would love to know as well. <laughs> no, it, it is one of the most difficult passages to interpret. What is, what is Paul actually communicating here? Is he talking about um, baptism? living people being baptized in proxy for a dead person. Um, That seems to be the most simple and obvious reading of this passage. However, that's not appealed to anywhere else in Scripture, and so we don't view that as a practice that was widely practiced or widely held to. Some have sought to interpret this as saying that all of us are baptized for the dead, that we are dead in our sins, And when we are baptized, we are a dead person being baptized and being raised up to newness of life. And so that's another alternative for interpreting that passage. But in reality, we simply don't really know what this practice was or what it means. But what we do know is how this fits in the overall picture and argument that Paul is making in talking about the resurrection for the dead. The practice of baptism is meaningless if there is no resurrection from the dead. Baptism as its ordinance preaches the resurrection from the dead. You are buried with him through baptism and you are raised up to walk in newness of life. And so whatever being baptized for the dead means, the practice of baptism and what that symbolizes is meaningless if there is no resurrection from the dead. And I think that's the main idea or the big idea of what Paul is getting at by talking about baptism here. As we celebrate communion later today, we have the same hope through that practice as well. Jesus said, I will not partake of this meal until you come to be with me and we partake of it together. And so there is an eschatological future fulfillment of this ordinance as well. And so both of those things have no meaning unless the dead are raised. So Paul then goes on to talk about two other implications for the resurrection of the dead. The one it has to do with courage, and the second has to do with pleasure. Why am I in danger every hour? I affirm, brother, oh, yeah, I affirm, brothers and sisters, by the boasting in you which I have in Christ our Lord, that I die daily, and if from human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what good is it to me? And so there Paul talks about the courage that he has because of the resurrection from the dead. The truth, the knowledge, and the hope that we will experience resurrection from the dead gives us courage to face whatever we have before us today. Whatever fearful thing we are looking at, we find courage to face that through the hope of the resurrection from the dead. You've all heard the Jim Elliot quote, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. That is the decision that you and I must make every day as we approach our walk with the Lord. We will face suffering, hardship, trial, and pain in this life. 
And the way we do that with courage and strength and faith is by looking at the hope of the resurrection and beholding that. And finally, he talks about a proverb that the Corinthians used, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. This was not a proverb that was used in the church, but a proverb that the Corinthian community would have used to justify their sinful excesses and their luxurious way of life. What's the point of of denying ourselves because we're just going to die? So let's enjoy this life to the fullest. Let's have every pleasure and everything we could possibly enjoy. Let's do it now because when this life is over, it's over. And for you and I, we know that the pleasures of this life pale in comparison to the beautiful future that awaits us in our resurrected bodies. Whatever we could enjoy in this life, whatever pleasures there are here are a fraction of the beauty and the pleasures that come from worshiping before our risen Lord and Savior in our glorified bodies. And so the conclusion that Paul draws is sober up morally and stop sinning. Live righteously in this life because there is a life to come that we anticipate and we look forward to. And there is incredible value and worth in that life to come that is only gained by how we live in this life. And so we talked about this passage at the sunrise service this morning, but he concludes his entire discussion of the resurrection with this in verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be firm, immovable, always excelling in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. How do we know that our labor is not in vain? Because of the resurrection. The things you do for the Lord, the service you offer to Him, is the only thing in this life that will last for eternity. What the other things you devote yourselves to in this life will burn up. They'll be done away with and they'll be consumed. But because of the resurrection of the dead, we know that what we do for Christ will continue into the life to come. And so as we think about the reality of the resurrection from the dead, and as we conclude this morning, there is a strong imperative in this passage to examine our lives, to examine the priorities of the things that we do, and to look at whether these things will last for eternity Are these things done in service to the Lord, or are these things done simply to bring pleasure to myself? Are these things done to worship and to serve a risen Savior, or are these things done simply to give myself personal gratification? And every one of us, as we look at the reality of the resurrection of the dead, should question those priorities and examine our own hearts. So in conclusion, we've seen in this passage that Christ's resurrection from the dead is a historical fact and a reality. We've seen the value that the resurrection brings to our lives, that it is not a worthless faith and that we're delivered from our sins because of the resurrection from the dead. And then we've seen the moral imperative that the resurrection provides for our lives, to examine our hearts, to examine our priorities, and to seek to walk more closely with Him. So as we go, go out for our Easter Sunday, I hope that those thoughts encourage you and I hope they challenge you on this day. Would you pray with me as we go to the table? Father, thank you for this passage. Thank you for Paul's careful construction of an argument for the value of the resurrection from the dead. And I am profoundly grateful that you have chosen in your grace 
to allow us to experience a resurrection from the dead, that you use your power to bring our dead hearts to life, to give us new life in this life as well as in the life to come. And so, Father, we are grateful for that, and we pray that as we approach the communion table today, those thoughts would be um, on our hearts and our minds this morning. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.